will fix you. Hello, and welcome to We Will Fix You, the podcast that you will be delighted to know has been, since last Wednesday, no longer either oil or silicon based. And if you would like to slip in some questions, you can write to us at we will fix you show at gmail.com or using the little feedback box at hauntedphonograph.com. And if you do so, your advice will come to us. And we are Mr. Dave Convery, the only clown in the entire Southeast you can pay to liven up a bris. I hope you're not one of those screamers. Mr. H.J. Doom, a semi-professional frog wrangler. Slippery, slippery, but strangely alluring. Always. I, of course, am Roger Hart, Tilda Swinton's stunt penis. Our question this evening pertains to entertainment of the televisual kind. Dear, we will fix you. Because my husband's job is taxing and he just wants to decompress with easy watching at home, I have seen way too much Friends recently. Uh, you could argue that one episode is way too much Friends, but here we are anyway. The you guys count in that show is like a Geiger counter in the mid-1980s Ukraine. How do we stop this sexist filth from infecting the young people who apparently love the show? Yours, tetchy middle-aged feminist. H.J. Doom. I have a confession to make in answer to this question. I have seen every episode of Friends. I have strong opinions on Ross and Rachel, and even stronger opinions on Rachel and Joey, which is, I think we can all agree, the only genuinely healthy relationship ever shown. I think there are good reasons why Friends remains popular, and I'd like to illustrate them, starting with my own personal story for context. So, a couple of years ago, I got depressed. This is fairly routine experience for me, the kind of thing that comes around with the same monotonous regularity as a general election or a new Coldplay record. This wasn't the whimsical kind of depression where you feel a bit sad and write some terrible poetry. This was the uh, black hole kind of depression where you don't leave the house for weeks on, on, on end and everything makes you either feel sad or empty or sometimes somehow both. Because there's only so much crying you can realistically do in one day, I needed to have something on in the background while I lay motionless on the sofa, praying for a heart attack or an aneurysm to do me a solid and make everything go away. I needed something superficially funny and deeply, deeply unchallenging. I needed something there was a lot of so I didn't have to learn a whole bunch of new characters. I needed something with enough ongoing plot to create a modicum of tension, but not so much that it would matter if I spaced out and thought about death for a few hours. Friends fit the bill perfectly. Now, I don't think that Friends Appeal is limited only to the suicidally depressed. Although, even if it was, it would probably still have been the most successful sitcom of all time. There are several reasons why I think it retains an audience despite some pretty clear shortcomings. Firstly, Friends is genuinely quite funny at points. There's some surprisingly dark material hidden behind the cappuccinos and retrograde sexual politics. Like there's an episode with a brother and sister who may or may not be having an incestuous affair. 
There's one where someone fun quits drinking and they turn into the most boring person imaginable. There's a lovely bit of physical comedy here and there, including a fantastic scene where Ross tries to get back into an overly tight pair of leather trousers in a girl's bathroom. Secondly, Friends is the most 90s thing you can possibly imagine, which is also, crucially, the last time that a mood of hopeful optimism was prevalent in Western society. It presents a fantasy world where people have the energy to go and grab a coffee with friends before they go to work. Not after they go to work, but before they go to work, which when you think about it is completely mental. Thirdly, the characters have relatable problems, but ones which don't cause them to experience any actual significant harm. So while Joey may struggle to get acting gigs, there's no sense that he's going to get evicted from his flat. There's a kind of invisible safety net, which provides a sense of reassurance that whatever ills may befall the characters, you're not going to have to watch anyone sucking off strangers in a disused toilet to get money for Skag. What I'm saying is that I can see the appeal, especially if you've nothing to really live for. If anyone's listening from NBC, by the way, and needs a quote for the back of the next DVD reissue, you can have that one for free. Is it problematic? Hugely. Ross, in particular, is a terrible advert for being an adult man, someone who feels a grotesque sense of entitlement to have a relationship with a woman, basically because he used to jerk off about her at school. I mean, if that worked, I would literally be married to Colin Farrell. There's repeated fat shaming and body fascism. There's transphobia and a criminal lack of people of colour. Would I prefer it if the young people were obsessed with Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine or The Good Place? Definitely. Do I think that erasing friends from the world would mean that young people suddenly got turned on to all the stuff I approve of? Definitely not, because being into stuff that middle-aged people disapprove of is kind of one of the points of being young. One thing where I definitely agree with you is that young people must be stopped, and stopped at all costs. But what to do about stopping young people? One thing is to reflect that we as a society are actually doing quite a lot to stop the young. Part of the appeal of Friends, as I said earlier, is that it portrays a world in which there is freedom and opportunity for the young, where renting a property in Manhattan is within their reach, where someone can go from being a coffee shop waitress to a fashion buyer at a major retailer. In the future, the first job will be surplus to requirements as soon as Starbucks get their caffeine drip system online, and the second will be outsourced to an algorithm that will combine the flamboyance of Jean-Paul Gaultier with the callous determination of the Terminator. There may still be cooks like Monica, but their jobs will mostly consist of trying to work out what sauce pairings go well with fish that is now 40% plastic microbead. There's a running gag in Friends that no one knows what Chandler does for a living, and in, in the future, this trend will spread throughout the economy so that all business discussions consist entirely of people trying to explain to each other exactly what Baroque shit they do for a living to the general bafflement of all, while in the background a computer continues to mercilessly trade pork belly futures a billion times a second in order to siphon 10% of global GDP off to a hedge fund owned by someone who died eight years previously. Planes will crisscross the sky filled with people going to strategy planning sessions on the other side of the world to decide what colour an icon on the screen of a smartphone should be if it's mostly going to be viewed by the light of a raging forest fire. All we have to do to ensure that young people are stopped is to keep doing what we're doing. After all, what's the alternative? Provide a future for young people where a sexually regressive comedy series from the 1990s doesn't look more appealing than the present? 
give them the opportunities that our generation took for granted and a functioning biosphere in which to enjoy them? Give them some actual hope? No, 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 that's crazy talk. Let's just keep on keeping on and hope that when we're old and frail and living in a care home at the bottom of an irradiated mineshaft, the young people are kind enough to remember to feed us and clean us once in a while, and that they remember to put the TV on. I imagine it'll still be showing friends. Now, um, as, as someone with a, with a nonsense business job that no one really understands and that doesn't really make sense, I, um, I, I relate to this, this scenario quite a bit. Um, and, um, and so what I've done is I've, I've kind of um, I've, I've riffed on this suggestion and tried to, to kind of bring some of that to bear by massively over-architecting a technology and business solution to your problem. Um, so often when you're doing product development, um, which, which is kind of sort of a bit if you squint what I do, um, what you might want to do is start small by solving a problem for a particular local niche of your customer base and then kind of adding and expanding and working out to the mass market. So we're going to start in your own home. Now, and we're going to start with the specific problem because it's always best to start with a specific problem and then kind of increment outwards. And your initial problem is... Um, the you guys thing, the, the kind of the the sort of pervasive low rumble sexism of, of you guys as a universal, which it is not. Now, the very simplest thing to do about some audio content in some media that you find objectionable, especially if it's short, is bleep censorship. Old fashioned goes back to the 20s and 30s, and you could either have some kind of lag or caching solution where you push a button when you hear it and then it kind of gets bleeped out or elided. Um, so you, you could you could lash something together so that when you're watching this with your other half, it's on a slight delay and maybe you've got a head, an earphone in, sort of like that weird movie Primer. Um, you're kind of a couple of minutes ahead and you could just push the button. And you, you could lash something together. Now, I would actually suggest something a bit more modern. I would suggest a software solution. I've talked before on this show about building Alexa skills, and you could use some of the online examples and some of the APIs to train Alexa on a voice corpus and get it to detect when friend says you guys and bleep over it. And what that will get you is um, a local solution. It will get you the, the specific incidents of kind of low magnitude, high frequency, grinding sexism bleeped out in your living room. But crucially, the other thing that will get you is a deep understanding of friends, um, a deep understanding of modern media, and a deep understanding of um, voice recognition APIs, which is going to be really, really helpful for the next step of your fix, which is to take your problem mass market. Now, in order to solve the problem of endemic sexism and the general problems of friends, uh, yes, we could just let young people enjoy things, but like, I work in capitalism, fuck off. Um, so what you're actually going to do is you are going to go and get a job at Netflix. Because the only way to be able to systemically bleep out all the sexism or change the perceptions or change the way that Friends is presented to the masses is to be able to intervene in it before it gets to people's screens. And the only way you're going to, be able to do that is at the source by going to work for Netflix. Now, they are constantly hiring software engineers and product managers. Uh, I, I am the latter of those two not at Netflix, obviously, like I'm not that competent. But if you can intervene in the presentation of their product, the design of their product, then you can probably um, do something there. You can 
slip in your censorship solution or tweak things or suggest that they add a feature to de-sexismify friends before it gets to people's TV screens. The, the hard part is not that, because as a product manager, you can loosely explain what you want to do and why. And some like douchebag who's paid £200,000 a year and is 22 and went to Harvard will write an algorithm to do it. That, that won't work, but then someone much more sensible in their late 30s will come along and do it properly in three lines of JavaScript. But you have to go through the first phase first, because otherwise no one takes anything seriously in the tech sector. Um, so what you need to do is get a product management job at Netflix. and. Fortunately, I, I am here to help you, not because I work at Netflix, I don't, but because I've hired a lot of product managers. So I'm gonna let you in on a couple of things, um, just sort of some of the product management interview process I go through when I'm hiring people. And it will be harder at Netflix because, not necessarily because they're any smarter or any better, they may or may not be, but because they're more famous and they have more money. So um, generally speaking, in a product management interview, you'll start with some CV questions. Oh, tell me about this, tell me about that. that that's all about making the candidate comfortable. Skip over it, try not to be a sociopath. But, but drop in a few things like, yeah, I really like uh, just kicking back on the sofa and watching Friends. This is the key thing. You have to make absolutely certain you get to work on the portfolio that includes Friends. Um, after the make the candidate feel comfortable questions, I like to ask people, and you'll get something similar to this in most product management interviews, um, like tell me about the last product you shipped or the last piece of software you delivered. This is an invitation to big yourself up whilst talking about your immediate experience. It's not a particularly searching question, but this is where you talk about the fact that you built an audio filter and don't don't tip your hand here. Don't tell them you're trying to sort out the sexism in friends. Tell them about your kind of Alexa recognition thing that you built to make friends more enjoyable. So like, I don't know, every time you laughed along with the laughter track, kind of matching those features that maybe it posted a cute tweet, something like that. And then you might get a bunch of interesting hypothetical questions. I like to ask people sort of hypotheticals to show that they can think on their feet about product problems. So we'll ask things like, um, oh, I don't know, talk through the economics or the rationale of um, London Underground stations switching to digital advertising. Or tell me about what might be involved in a traditional box software company moving to SaaS. Or sometimes you get the bullshit estimation problems like um, what's Microsoft's B2B revenue in Europe, which is just one of those wanking around can you handle data questions. You, you, you're on your own with those. It'll be quite hard to get a friends example in there. But if you can, you should. Like, I don't know, um, talk about the economics of... Um, Monica's job or uh, how Rachel might have optimized fashion buying based on sort of trend setting or starting cheap and going up mass market. There, there may be things, you, wherever you can tie it back to, to friends. Communication with stakeholders is a big question in product management interviewing. People, we're, we're always gonna wanna know how you deal with multiple different types of people. And this is where you can really shine because you can use examples with the different friends personae. Like sometimes there's the wacky one or the, the low functioning absolute maniac who's a complete fucking nightmare. Or um, sometimes there's there's the, the, the weird, goofy, borderline racist, New York Italian stereotype. I, talk about different, different communication styles with different people using friends examples. How do you work with engineering teams? Always a valuable question. Your best proxy is how do you as someone, a highly functional human who likes Netflix, very successful show friends, communicate with people who doesn't, don't like the show friends? 
There are other things you might get asked. You might get asked to say, do a short presentation on a product that you find interesting or talk about how you would validate innovation. Um, go and read some Jeffrey Moore books. You'll be, you'll be fine. Just so long as you keep, keep your answers mostly, at least as some kind of backstop about the show, friends. Um, and, and after all of this, after you've and uh, after you've kind of successfully become a product manager at Netflix, you can roll out your fix. You can add an intermediating layer that skims the sexism or does some speech recognition. I don't know. They've got all sorts of weird algo shite going on there. The, the only thing I would ask after you've done all this and successfully become a, a Netflix product manager is that while you're there, could you please just for me get them to do another series of the Miss Fisher mysteries? Mr. Convery. When I first read this question, I have to admit that I took it very much at face value. How, how do we stop people liking friends? Um, and I thought about it, and initially I thought it should have been simple, since it is not and has never been funny. Uh, but apparently not. We live in a world where not only is this nonsense still popular 20 years after it started, but it's popular to the tune of around $100 million of Netflix's money every single year. Clearly, it's not going away. The young people, though, that is the concerning part, since, as we just discussed, Friends has no inherent value, clearly what they're engaging in is an exercise in lazy nostalgia and retro cool. These little fucks with their fortnight and their functional knees, they, they weren't there in the 90s. They don't remember what it was like for everything. Everything to have that fucking three neon triangles and a squiggle design on it. They didn't have to listen to three lions for four solid years. The entire country was like a cross between Butlins and Guantanamo Bay. We were all just collectively praying that we made it through the next time David Baddiel did his fucking solo bit without us all just walking into traffic. So since we're already fighting an uphill struggle here, let's go one further and get to the root of the problem. Let's murder nostalgia. Let's make the concept of nostalgia so toxic that we never have to deal with it again. It is, after all, a stupefying blanket that smothers intelligent thought and taste, and it should be stopped. And do you know what? By golly, I think we're the people to take it out into the alley by the bins and give it the fatal shoeing it deserves. I'm not saying old things are bad, by the way. I'm just saying that something's being old doesn't grant it inherent value. I am also saying that there are men in this country whose entire sexuality is based on a half-remembered episode of A Low A Low, and you can be fucking sure they voted for Brexit, so the nostalgic impulse is actively harmful. So, how do we do this? There was a 2014 study that found nostalgia dramatically increases in times of upheaval and un uncertainty. Now, I don't want to suggest that you have to create a utopian society to fix this problem. It would be nice if someone had a crack at that. But we do need a plan of action. Given that most mass movements work by appealing directly to nostalgia, we ideally need something a bit like that, but very much not like that. A sort of inverse of popular movements like fascism. A sort of 
anti... Uh, someone will come up with a name for it. Look, I'll be honest with you. I don't really know how you come up with a populist movement based on the rejection of populism. That's for you to figure out. I've got you this far. I cannot take care of every tiny detail for you. But if you can do something that gets rid of fascism and friends, it's got to be worth a fucking pop, doesn't it? Well, there we have it. A heady blend of lauding and punishing the young. Ah, look at us holding a mirror up to the world. And if you would like us to hold a mirror up to you and maybe point and say, is it meant to look like that? What a funny shape. Are you okay? Or sundry other things. Why not write to us at wewillfixyoushow at gmail.com?